Hear the word of God from James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses and make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint. So glad to be with you all this morning, and even in this, this format. So good that we get to worship together. And as, as we jump into our text this morning, I want to start out with a little caveat for us. Because I know, I know that some of your heads perked up this morning when you heard that we were talking about taming the tongue. I can already see the wheel start to, to turn in your heads. You're, you're thinking this. I, I, I know it. Oh, I bet this is going to be great for my roommate to hear. Oh, good. I can finally get some advice on how to control my child's tongue. Perfect. Or my favorite. Oh, man. I'm an extrovert. Okay. Tell me more. No. No. When when verse 8 says, But no human being can tame the tongue, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I take that to be all-inclusive. No one can tame the tongue. So, so let's go ahead and take it off the proverbial table that there's a kind of personality that's more naturally inclined to tame the tongue. When James says that no human being can tame the tongue, that disqualifies everyone from the loud and obnoxious to the quiet and reserved. Every single one of us screws this up. Now, I have benefited for the majority of my adult life by having people think that I'm wiser, smarter, and more thoughtful than I deserve, only because there is perceived wisdom from reducing the number of dumb things that come out of your mouth. That's just what I observed. That's what I've experienced. But that is not what James is talking about. James is talking about a kind of speech that demonstrates your love for God and for others. And this isn't James's intellectual property. The prophet Isaiah also understood the nature of the tongue to be this way. We love quoting from this passage. This is from Isaiah 6.5. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. But that's not the whole verse. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord Almighty. What's the problem? Isaiah is saying, woe is me, because he recognizes that his way of life is outside, his way of life on the outside does not match the holy character of God. But it goes deeper. It goes deeper than this. Isaiah also has the self-awareness to realize that what's happening on the outside is likely a good indicator of what's happening on the inside. And he's observing that this is true of all of us. He's saying, everyone I am around is like this. I am a part of a community of people who have unclean lips, who are not like the Lord. Woe is me. And this brings us right into our text this morning. Taming the tongue is a task that none of us can get our heads around. We just just can't seem to wrap our minds around how to do this. But we must not neglect the seriousness of what we are so forthcoming in doing, namely talking. We talk a lot, some of us more than others, but, but we talk so much. And this brings us right into the text. This brings us right into what James is teaching us, which is my, the, the first point here is, is the tongue is a powerful human faculty. And in particular, words unchecked are dangerous. And so my question for you to consider this morning is, who's your sounding board? Who is, who's checking you on what you're saying? Who's checking you on the thoughts that you're thinking? Who's your sounding board? In verses 1 and 2, James is specifically telling those who desire to teach, beware. Teaching is a serious responsibility. And in our Christian context, we, we would all agree One who ably prepares the word of God is a tremendous blessing in the life of the church. But one who does so to the neglect of the word or with a bent toward his own opinions can be a root of bitterness, deception, and abuse. The one who teaches is a prime example of how words don't only affect the one who speaks. Words also make an impression on those who receive it. And this is James's point here. He's saying, we all get this wrong in all kinds of ways towards all kinds of people. In what we say, in how we say it, in when we say it, in why we say it, in whom we say it to. As N.T. Wright puts it, teachers who slander, who make reckless accusations or verbal attacks, who grumble and quarrel will naturally cause greater damage to the community by virtue of their position and their implicit authority. To err in any of these ways can be devastating to the body. And the one who teaches will be judged accordingly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check, verse 2 tells us. And isn't this our theology on paper? I mean, wouldn't we we agree to this? Absolutely. 100%. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I fall short. But if what you do in practice is different from your orthodoxy, what you believe, what good is it? James has already asked us this question. Let let me tell you what I mean. In the current cultural climate we live in, we know that we're not perfect. We would all agree to that. You could ask anybody in, in the environment that we live in, they would all give you that same, they would all concede to that. 
But we are so certain of this one thing. We're all certain of it. We all reach this conclusion about ourselves, and it's this, that I am right. We all believe that. We all believe it, that you are right. Being puffed up is easy. But walking the road toward humility, the real road toward humility, that, that makes us cringe. That's uncomfortable. We would say we know that we're not perfect, but to actually do something about it, Mm. Because it means not only acknowledging we have blind spots, but being willing to discover them in the context of a community that knows you. So I'm appealing, at the very least, to our textbook theology when I ask this question. And this this is going outside of the classroom and into, into real life. This is very practical for us. What safeguard do you have in place to check your words? Who are you inviting into your life to know you, the real you? When I was in college, I was living in this community of, of Christian guys, and, and one of the guys had his, has a close friend from high school come and stay with us for several days. And At the end of it, we were all hanging out together in, in the living room area, and, and one of the guys asked him, he said, hey, hey, give us an honest reflection. What did you observe from us as a house? What did you, what did you notice about our community? He's taken back by that question. He had to think about it. I'm sure any of us would. But, but he, mentioned, he, he mentioned some encouraging things. But one thing he pointed out was how sarcastic our speech was toward one another. He said, you're all pretty quick-witted. You all like joking around. You like having fun. And it's, and it's mostly that. It's mostly for fun. But, but I don't think you realize. I, I don't think you realize how sharp your words are toward one another. I don't think you realize the damage that you're slowly doing, that you're slowly having. And you know what? I don't know about for the other guys, but you know what? For, for me, he was absolutely right. I, I knew that. I, I knew that I talked that way, but I was totally blind to that reality of the, the, the potential damage that my words could be causing. Now, we, we weren't mean-spirited toward each other. We, we loved each other. At least, at least we, we acknowledged that we loved each other. But I know for me, I wasn't building up my brothers in the Lord. I know that. Not many of you should be teachers, James tells us. But we're all functional teachers because we all have platforms. We all have virtual pulpits that we preach from. We don't readily acknowledge this. We don't even really think about it this way. We, we, don't, we don't do that. But, but when we speak into the world at our fingertips, we assume that someone is listening. Lest we default into this, this mindset of we're, we're making this kind of public journal entry. And let me tell you, nobody wants that. Not even you. Maybe especially you. You don't, you don't want a public journal entry. There are some among us who are not in the habit of, of doing journal entries, okay? Now, now, when I talk about writing in journals, I'm talking more old school here. I'm, taking, I'm talking about like you take a pen, you open up a book of blank pages, you start to write in it, and, and you just put your thoughts down. There's some of us who, who don't do this. Now, you know what happens with those thoughts? This is for those of you who, who've never done this. This is for those of you who, who don't know what it's like to actually journal. You don't have the time for it. It's just not your personality. That's fine. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Here's what happens. You come back to that journal entry, maybe six months, a year later. You start thinking, you know, I was, I was going through these things at this time in my life. I, 
I wonder what I was thinking when I was 22. I wonder what I was thinking when I was 25, when I was, when I was going through this thing and, and how I was processing that. And, and so you go and you, you pick out that journal and, and you, you open up the pages and you look at, uh, you find the date that you're looking for and the time and, and, and you start to read through it. Your, your curiosity is at its, at its height. You're reading through this journal entry that you wrote years, years ago, months ago. And then you ask this question, what fool wrote that, right? Like, who was that? That was me. I wrote that? Oh my gosh, I'm going to rip this up and burn it. I hope nobody reads that. The problem we face is that every one of us has been given an opportunity to take the position of teacher. Today, more than ever, we have the ability to speak from various platforms to a wide-reaching audience. The social environment we currently encounter has created opportunities for us to use the most dangerous faculty of our person with greater frequency than ever before. And so let me implore you to cry out like the psalmist cries out in Psalm 141.3 cries out. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. James warns us, be careful. Be careful that you desire to teach because not a one of us is perfect. We all get this wrong. But we all desire the role and we take even more of it if the opportunity arose. Why? Because we think what we have to say would be good for others to hear. We do. With our words, God can fan the flames to ignite the next spiritual awakening. But we can just as easily condemn people to silence through an aggressive, browbeating word. I see this kind of talk all over my newsfeed. Maybe you've seen it too. Some, some people seem more like the kind of coaches that want to get up in your face and yell at you. When I was in middle school, I had a, a, my middle school soccer coach. He used to yell at me in his Jamaican accent. He'd say, you need to grow, boy. And I would tell him, you know, coach, you're right. I want what you want from me. I just, I just can't seem to make it happen at the, at the rate that you want it to happen. Others sound like aggravated parents. Why don't you get what I am saying? This is not that hard. Others are just exasperated. If you don't like what I have to say, then you can leave. When James says we all stumble in a variety of ways, he's not joking. He gets it. He gets it. And, and doesn't this all just make practical sense? Words matter a great deal. But just as important as the words you teach are those who are shaping the teaching. The teaching you choose to submit under matters a great deal because it will start to change you. Let me give you an example. If I asked you the question, what is the human condition? You would, you would all know the answer to this question. This, this, is, this is Waypoint 101, right? This is, this is on our Waypoint bingo cards. This is what happens all the time. We say this all the time. What is the human condition? The human condition is this, that we all desire to be known, to be loved, and to have purpose. Maybe, maybe 10 years from now, the Lord will have moved you and your family to a new city, a new place, and you get asked the same question. Same answer, just, just pours out of you, just, just gushes out, and, and unfiltered, and, and, and you're wondering, 
where did that come from? Like that, that was a reflex for me. That, that just, like, I haven't even thought about that and I don't even remember how long. Where, where, did, where did that come from? What you are gathering yourself around and opening yourself up to, you are filling your heart with. You are filling your heart with. Number two, the tongue is a helpful measure of our spiritual maturity. The tongue is a helpful measure of our spiritual maturity. The, the words the tongue speaks are a helpful sign of the progress of our faith because it reflects the condition of our hearts. To recap what we've said so far in, in the positive is that to control the tongue is to direct the whole person in the way that God would direct the person. That person would be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James gives us three examples to illustrate the power of the tongue and the responsibility of our words. A bit in the mouth of a horse, a rudder that steers a ship, and a spark that can ignite a forest fire. And what James is teaching us is that not only can a small faculty have such significant influence on a large enterprise, but that in fact it's controlling and directing the whole show. I mean, just consider with me the power of the tongue. It has the ability to destroy someone's reputation, to tear down and make fun of others, to slander, to gossip, to lie. Harsh words spoken can leave insufferable wounds that endure for a lifetime. There are probably many of us who are walking around dealing with this right now. These words deep beneath the surface, hurtful words. We walk around with them. The tongue can be strangely silent in the face of evil and yet speak an unkind or untimely word to a discouraged heart. The tongue does not have to be this way. It's just that it so frequently is. And so as we are inviting others in to assess our speech, to know our thoughts, to search our hearts, we should be asking together, what is the source of our words? What's the source of our words? And what is the aim of our words? What is the source of our words? I, I recently, recently read a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And, and, and let me tell you, that book will nourish your soul. But I keep coming back to this, this hypothetical question posed in the book. When you are in default mode, what is waiting to come out of you? In default mode, what is waiting to come out of you? For God, Ortland argues, what is most readily available, what gushes out of him, what, what he's sitting on the edge of his seat waiting to do, is to be gracious and merciful. Now, I think in the back of our minds, we, we, we think we're being hyperbolic when we talk about the love of God or the love God has for us in Christ. As if when we talk about the attributes of God, we're describing, like, like we, we talk about like we're describing a superhero. But we're not. We are not exaggerating the love of God for you, for us. We are not. We would be surprised to find someone respond to wrongdoing with loving and patient justice. To sound more kind than scary, to be more gentle than intimidating, 
more compassionate than irritable? Because that's how we are. That's how we would respond. That's what we would do. But God is not like that. And He's not bound to respond with the same way that we respond. The question, though, is is why are we like that? And what James is telling us is that the answer is not that far away. I've heard social media referred to before as, as the armpit of the internet. It's pretty obvious, right? It stinks. And I think it's an accurate assessment only because what we find in these spaces is the unfiltered heart on full blast. The unfiltered heart on full blast. Maybe we would be more compassionate if if we took a step back and and just observed this. Jesus says in Luke 6.45, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And in Matthew 15, 19, and 20, Jesus says again, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. What is the source of our words? Whatever we have filled our hearts with. And the heart does not fill itself up with accidental treasures. More often than not, what what you love is what you get. What you love is what you get. I think some people come to this passage in James and and they think, if I just reduce the number of bad things I say, and and if I increase the number of good things I say, then I'm golden. I've tamed the tongue. As if I've somehow balanced the scale. No. The year before I got married, I I lived in this house again, talking about this house again, another college store. I I lived with seven other guys in Carborough. Now, now some would say that's a terrible idea. I I personally loved it. I thought it was awesome. I'd I'd do it again, hands down. The condition of the house, on the other hand, was was less than ideal. The problem was that our landlord doubled as our handyman. Now, my bedroom was on the first floor, and it was was immediately adjacent to the the downstairs bedroom, I mean, the the downstairs bathroom, which was also doubled as, as a laundry room, which had a mold problem so bad the priests in Leviticus would have condemned that place to destruction. They would have said nobody should be in, in, within 10 feet of that place. It should be demolished. We lived there. Our landlord, he told a previous housemate who, who complained about the year before that, no, you, you're just allergic to toxic mold. Well, apparently so am I, because I had the worst sinus infection of my life. It lasted over two months, and it got so bad that I had to ask one of my housemates to take me to the hospital. I didn't think I was ever going to breathe the same way again. If your strategy for taming the tongue is to bury your words, to eliminate hurtful speech as a way of qualifying yourself, then you're just covering mold with paint. It may mask the problem, but you have not yet dealt with the source. Verse 6 says, The tongue also is a fire, a word of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That is an unignorable statement, is it not? 
What James is telling us is that the whole catalog of sinful behavior manufactured from hell itself is at your disposal. It can be discovered in the human heart. In in other words, what will create the greatest disruption to pursuing the godly life is what fills your heart and gushes out of your mouth. So in verse 8, James says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And, And that is what rests in the reserves of our hearts. On the one hand, our words are deadly. James is literally saying, he's saying your words are dead. They're like, they're like venomous poison from your mouth. But on the other hand, God will not leave us to our own devices. This is the hopeful implication of what I think James is, is t- teaching here. Truly taming the tongue is something that requires divine intervention. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. Whatever you're doing, stop and listen. God is not surprised to find this in you. This was not an oversight. He didn't start to get closer up and and realize he he didn't want this. I I wonder if this is what God saw in us when when it says in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So Jesus is redeeming you and speaking a better word of you and putting to death the sin that stains you? There was no oversight. God is not shocked by your sin. God is a God both gracious and merciful. He is eager to lavish you with his love, to fill your heart with his words. This brings us to the second question. What, what is the aim of our words? We, we saw what's the source of our words. What's the aim of our words? This is what Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is bringing to the table. The act of speaking is a kind of works that demonstrates our faith. What you say and do is an overflow of the heart. It, it would make no logical sense for your, word, for your works to match a mature heart, but not your words. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. We, we just consider the kind of wicked, unrighteous poison that can be uttered by the lips. So then you can just imagine how shocking it would be to find a mouth that has a bent toward God and others. We are not like God, but He is changing us. In Christ's strength, we have the capacity to speak words of life that come from the mouth of the Father. And we don't just conjure up the the ability to do this on our own. We don't just heed the advice of our parents that if, if you have nothing good to say, then don't say anything at all. No, we are able to speak these kinds of words because we've been given new loves. And God has given us room to grow in that as we learn His heart. He's given us room to grow in this house. I was sharing with my small group earlier this week that some people love the outdoors, right? They, they love going backpacking to see the, the spacious skies, the, the beautiful mountaintops. They can look at God's creation and see the beauty of his craftsmanship. Some people are really good at noticing this. Me? I don't care. That, to, to me, that's not what justifies going camping. Just, just take a picture and send it to me. I'll be fine. And you might say, oh, oh that's, just, that's just your personality, or that, that, that's just what you're interested in. That's fine. Like, whatever. 
No. I'm telling you, I think it's a deficiency in me. Not about camping. That's a whole other story. Not, not about camping. About being in awe of the beauty of God. That, that is a deficiency that I want God to elevate in my life. And there are lots of things like that. There are things that are within the heart of God that He's inviting you in to care about and love. You don't love all the things that God loves. But he's growing you. He's maturing you. He's raising you up in this. Among those are people made in his image. He invites us in to speak words of restoration, hope, and love into the lives of those around us. Words that are life-giving. Words that are rooted in the reality of the gospel that proclaim the advance of his craftsmanship in, the, in our lives and the lives of others. When you gather with the church, when, when we get to do this again in, in full blast, when we gather with the church, you are encountering the miraculous tapestry of God's craftsmanship. I think about this a, a lot with those who serve in our youth ministry. Nathan Chung, God, God has gifted him with the ability to notice details in others. To, to notice details. He, he uses that to remember and to, to consider the needs of those around him. It's, it's amazing. Young, she, she can draw you into the presence of God with her voice, but she's also eager to draw out the spiritual realities among us and to point out the giftings God has blessed others with that they might use them. Rebecca, I wish I prayed more like Rebecca Doris. I pray that God grows my heart like that. Matt, Matt Markovitz, is, is there anyone who treasures the scriptures like Matt and is jealous for others to know the sufficiency of Christ? Chelsea, she, she has the compassion and care of 10 moms. She loves and she loves and she loves. Kelvin, Lord, you have made him so approachable and gentle, just like your son. It's amazing. Diane, she is so consistent and patient. She has the ability to sit with anyone and listen to them and love them and they feel cared by her. These are things I see the Lord producing in them in the context of real community, of getting up close and personal, of of going deeper together. Church, what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? There there are many ways to answer this question. There are many right answers to this question. We we uphold and exalt, exalt the gospel Absolutely, yes. We desire the good news to be advanced to the nations. Absolutely. We, we love the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, and the brokenhearted. Yes. To all these things, I say yes and amen. Let's keep going. We want to be known by our works and also by our words. May I add one? What if we were known as a body that is so unmistakably encouraging toward one another? That we make it our habit to point out the things we see the Lord working out in the lives of those around us. That we cherish these things. That that it be our joy to see God maturing other believers in the body. That they're growing in the giftings that the Lord has given them. Let this be the heart that moves us to speak Let this be the overflow of our mouths that comes from our mouths. We we are walking 
miracles. Only by the grace of God who has saved us and prepared us for good works in his name. Number three, the tongue demonstrates the consistency of our faith. The tongue demonstrates the consistency of our faith. Verses 9 through 12 are inviting us to do a heart check. James is saying, let's be really practical here. Let's, let's use common sense logic. As we already stated, what comes out of the heart must, be, must first be in the heart. That's straightforward theology. That's very practical. But then he goes on. If you go to a spring of fresh water, you won't find both fresh and salt water. The mixing of the two would tell you something is, is off. It, it just, you just don't find that. A fig tree? Guess what? It only produces figs. I mean, can you imagine having a tree that's, that's just wild? That you, you never know what it's gonna, what's going to grow on it from year to year? It's always a surprise. Maybe, maybe it doesn't have a harvest one year. It's, just, it's unreliable. It's inconsistent. Trees aren't designed like that. If you want figs, you go to a fig tree. If you want grapes, you take from a grapevine. That's what, how it works. James is saying the tongue also functions this way. And so James is calling for consistency that coincides with righteousness. His desire is for maturity, wholeness, which means we're to be a blessing-only kind of people. For cursing to remain in the tongue would mean that more cleansing needs to be done. And this is not like dirt in a cup that the dishwasher missed kind of cleansing. No, this is like cancer that is, if left unchecked, will destroy your whole body kind of cleansing. This is what it means to be double-minded, to be full of hypocrisy. The outward appearance conflicts with the inward reality. This is why genuine faith can't just be the, the outer shell of our lives. If you're content with a facade, eventually your mouth is going to out you. Eventually the real you is going to come to the surface. And if you're trying to live a double-minded life, eventually something's going to give. You won't be able to keep it up. Not for a lifetime. Now, I could keep going here, but, but I, think, I think the point is pretty straightforward. I think what James is saying is, is pretty straightforward for us. And so I think what will be a better service to us in these last few moments is to recognize God's love for you now. His love for you now. I get the sense that what, what we need to put in view is that God is not waiting to love a new and improved version of you. Eric 2.0. He's not some investor awaiting your stock to rise so he can cash in. And God is not like us that his time and energy are wearing thin. God is not wasting away. He is the same today, tomorrow, always, forever. That's who God is. He is. He is. The Father sending the Son is God's way of saying, I am fully invested and God's gifting you with the Holy Spirit is His way of saying, you are fully equipped. The seal of God's kept promise, our helper, is leading us with patience, truth, and love to the finish line. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If, if this is true of you, if you, if you make these utterances, if you, if you really believe that in your heart, then consider the work that the Holy Spirit has begun in you. 
consider the miracle that God has been at work in, in you. May you have confidence. May you have confidence that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, we know that we, we cannot tame our tongue, that we get this wrong in, in all kinds of ways. Lord, would you help us? God, would you remind us of the work that you are doing in us and for us and through us? God, would you help us to consider the weightiness of our words? God, would you, would you give us people in our lives that we can open up to, that we can, and they can open up to us, that we, we would have genuine community that really loves each other, we really know each other, we really love each other, and we walk in the purpose that you have set out before us. God, may this be true of Waypoint Church, that we are learning to tame our tongues only by the work of the Spirit empowering us. God, you are our helper. God, may we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come to a time in our service where we take the Lord's Supper or sometimes called communion or holy communion. And this is uh, commanded by our Lord Jesus and affirmed by the Apostle Paul as, as a, a thing of sacrament, a, a ritual that we do to remember Christ's suffering, his death, and his resurrection until he comes back. And this morning we join with Christian sisters and brothers throughout the world, and this is our time to come to the table of the Lord. And this is tough. You're at home. Some of you may have forgotten to buy the grape juice, so you got water in front of you, or LaCroix or something, I don't know, Coke. And that's okay. God is, God is good, and he's with us, and it's, it's, it's not the juice or the bread, but it's, it's what it represents, that it represents Christ. And I want us to do two things this morning as we come to the Lord's table. The first one is I want us to confess our sins to God and accept his forgiveness. And in light of this James passage and the book of James as a whole, we're actually, now we've gone through, you know, two and a half chapters of James as God's shown us his grace by saying your heart is, is troubled and your, and your heart fosters all kinds of evil, but turn to me and accept my mercy. And every one of us is guilty of using our tongue to hurt others, using our tongue to lift ourselves up to places that God doesn't want us to go in pride and, to, and push others down. You may have done this recently on social media. You may have done this in a conversation. You maybe even feel guilty about a conversation you had five years ago, 10 years ago. There's forgiveness in Christ. So don't dwell on that. If you need to go talk to that person and say, hey man, years ago I said this and I'm sorry. Or if you need to retract something you said or you need to think more clearly about what you need to do next on social media or as you engage in conversations, that's, that's what this time's about. 
So right now, it's, it's literally like breathing. I want you to exhale the junk and just say, God, I need to get this out of my body so that I can breathe in your spirit and breathe in your life. Breathe in the, the goodness of Jesus. So let's do that right now. So breathe out the junk. Confess your sin to God. Even exhale. Take a deep breath. Accept his forgiveness. Accept his grace. Accept his mercy. And be filled with the Spirit. The next thing I want us to do is just remember that this is the new covenant in his blood. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, he says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's partake of the bread. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Let's partake of the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Father, we thank you that you came in mercy and truth. You came in grace. You you knew every inclination of our heart is evil. That's a passage from Genesis 6 that you saw before the flood. But you made a way for us to give mercy to others, to experience your mercy and to give it out to others. And as your people, as your new covenant people, God, use us this week to be people who are filled with your spirit and the words that come out of our mouth are the words of your grace and truth. And when we fail, may we be quick to ask for forgiveness. May we be quick to say that we were wrong and that we're continuing to grow in you. And may we walk in your mercy each day, God. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your suffering, for your death and your resurrection and that you are seated right now at the right hand of the Father and you are reigning and you are our Lord and our Savior. And we thank you that your sport your spirit is poured out upon us so that we could live for you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.